Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. I invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, as we continue our study on recalibrating our lives around biblical truths and biblical principles. We looked at prioritizing, looking at the priorities of our life, then we looked at integrity, and now we're looking at the issue of attitudes. One of my favorite stories is about uh, the Viennese psychiatrist, Dr. Viktor Frankl, who was a prisoner in a Nazi concentration camp. And he tells a story as how he was able to make it through as he stood there before the Gestapo and these judgmental German officials quizzing him and interrogating him and they'd taken his home and his family and all his belongings, even his clothing, and he stood there broken and humble and helpless, destitute. He realized that there was one thing that the Nazis could not take away from him. They could take his career, his home, all those other things, his family, but he determined that there was one thing they could not take and that was the power to choose his own attitude, the power to respond to circumstances around him. And his story goes on to It's there for us to read today is how that's what got him through that. The power of attitude. Well, I want us to look at the biblical principle of the power of attitude in Philippians chapter 2. And we'll look at several other passages in this book that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love. Sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should not everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Make your own attitude, verse five, that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men, and when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even to the death on a cross. Paul looks at the example of Christ, and we're going to come back and look at that in a moment, about how we're to have this godly attitude. But I want to begin by just stating a couple of of, uh, important things, the importance of attitudes. Two things I want to say as we talk about this. First of all, our attitudes can either make us or break us. That's important, isn't it, to realize that? Our attitude will either make us or break us. When things happen, my response to that, we've talked about this when someone offends us and you have trouble forgiving, you can go through that and it'll make you bitter or it'll make you better. It'll make you or break you. Harold Kushner tells a story when he was uh, studying, working as a medical officer, a POW during the Vietnam War 
was, was in a, a, a prison camp, and he, he managed to make it two years healthy, doing well, because the commandant of that prison camp told him, if you'll, if you'll do what's right, if you'll follow the rules, you'll get out of here. I'll, I'll set you free. So for two years, he followed the rules. He did everything right. And then it came to, to his, he realized the fact that that commandant of that prison camp was really just making that up. He wasn't going to let anybody go. They were stuck there for the duration. And when that prisoner realized that, he stopped eating. He stopped conversing with other prisoners. He just laid down on his cot and quit interacting with people and ultimately died. And as a Kushner tells that story, he says, what happened was this man lost all hope. His attitude went from, I can get through this. There's hope. I'm never going to get out of this. There's no hope. It'll either make us or break us. Secondly, and it goes along with this, we need to understand that circumstances will threaten our attitudes. Circumstances will threaten our attitudes. Now, we're going to talk about this. I know that people will threaten your attitude, but circumstances will threaten our attitude. Sometimes the people and the circumstances do that. We can't change the circumstances of our lives. We can try. I I have been... uh, wrongly identified as a control freak by some people. I, I took an assessment one time and went away to, to, to Golden Gate Seminary with 12 other guys or 11 other guys and we were in a, a D-men cohort group and we took this uh, assessment and of all the guys there, I, I, I ended up on the top as a control person. And, and they teased me about it the whole time. I said, this isn't really me. But I, I came to realize that I really do like to try to have things around me go a certain way. And you know what I've learned over the years? I can't control those things. Anybody else have trouble with that? Anybody want to be honest? That, that, it, that if you say, if I could only control circumstances, everything would be all right. I cannot control circumstances. So I put this point in here for me, all right? I told the 830 service, God's been doing a work in me this week as I looked at this. even told my, my wife and daughter, um, it's interesting that I'm preaching on attitude today. Um, so, yeah, you didn't have to laugh that hard. Um, circumstances can threaten our attitudes. I just think about the things that rattle us, the weather. It's too hot. It's too cold. It's raining. The sun's too bright. A test grade. Rejection of our application for a job. A rejection of a, rejection of a, a submission to a college. Who won or lost the ball game? A delay at the airport. Results of an x-ray or a CT scan. The cost of groceries. Loss of a promotion. Who won or lost the election? Circumstances. Pretty much out of my control. But what will happen is those circumstances will begin to threaten my attitude. If I'm going to have a godly, Christ-centered, biblical attitude about the circumstances of my life, they're going to try to rattle that. So let's look at what the Bible has to say. Enough of that, all right? Let's look at the right attitudes described in Scripture here. Back to Philippians 2. Paul is writing, if there's any encouragement in Christ. By the way, encouragement, joy, rejoicing is all through this this letter. If any consolation and love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. He's talking about this, 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 this goal to be pleasing to Christ, to, to submit, to be humble. Then in verse 5 there, he says, make your own attitude that of Christ. So Paul begins, and I believe Paul could, and he has in other places, could have made this whole testimony about himself, but he uses Christ as the example. So let's look at this example here to begin with Jesus. The attitude of unselfish humility. 
The attitude of unselfish humility. If you had to summarize this passage, I think that's what Paul is saying. We need to have this attitude that is in Christ Jesus. Some translations in verse 5 say, let this mind be in you. Let this attitude be in you. Make this attitude, verse 5. And I just want to look at this again. Verse 6 through 8. Who existing in the form of God, he was God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Some translations say he didn't grasp that. He didn't pull rank. He didn't say, I'm God and I don't have to go to the cross. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave. It doesn't mean he set aside his deity, as some people teach. It just means he stepped aside from his glory and limited himself in the form of a, taking on, it says, human likeness, the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man, if that, if that wasn't enough of humility in being man as, in its external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Paul uses Jesus here as this incredible example of unselfish humility. Now, probably you didn't have to say both, I didn't have to say both those words, right? Be unselfish and be humble. I put them together because I just want to underscore it's unselfish humility. That's that's what Jesus demonstrated. This is one of those passages, a great theological truth about the incarnation here, but it's in the context of Paul talking about humility. An attitude of unselfish humility. Paul had that. He called himself the least of the apostles, the, the least of all the saints, the chief of sinners. He recognized where he was. He recognized his place. Do you know what humility is? A lot of definitions, but the one I, the one I like is that, that God is God and I'm not. I put myself in my place. God is God and I'm not. He is sovereign. He's Lord of my life. And I accept that. And Jesus demonstrates his obedience to the Father by giving his life for us. Unselfish humility. I read about a survey of third graders. They were asked, who's your hero? Who's your hero? And some named rock stars and some named uh, movie stars and some named athletes and some named superheroes that were fictional. But they were amazed in that survey of third graders that a a bunch of those kids wrote me as their hero. Should that surprise us? The way our society teaches us, you're the most important thing in the world. It's all about you. It's all about you, honey. (laughs) You're the most wonderful thing. All those people are wrong. You're right. I've talked to some educators who say it's one of the biggest challenges in disciplining students is when the parents come in and and they want to know, they blame everything on the teachers and administrators. Why aren't you fixing my kid? And one of the most common responses when those children are taken or the parents are brought in and those teenagers or children are presented, the parents are saying, your son, your daughter did this. Here's the most common response. Not my little girl. Not my little boy. They would never do that. Because our society is telling them they're perfect and it's all about them. I read an interview recently and I agreed with almost everything in the interview. And then the person ended up with saying, I'm going to be true to my own truth. She said it twice in the closing lines of the interview. Her own truth. We're telling everybody, you find your own truth and you be true to that. How's that working for us? Here's the truth we're to be, we're to be true to. The truth of the word. I didn't mean to get off on that one. That survey of third graders set me off, though. Man. Someone said, pride is like a telescope turned the wrong way. Where the telescope is turned on you and it makes you look bigger than everybody else. 
We just need to keep it turned around the other way, right? I think that's a good illustration of what Paul is saying here. Unselfish humility. Secondly, second aspect of this right attitude is an attitude of positive encouragement. Positive encouragement. Very short verse in chapter, um, right down at the end of chapter 2 there, verse 14. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. I can do most things. On some days I do some things, right, Carissa? Some things. My family knows me. <laughs> I told them, God's, this, he's got me preaching this today. My attitude, often complaining. Paul says do everything without complaining and grumbling. That's a scriptural admonition for us. An attitude of positive encouragement, looking for something good to say about that person, looking for something good to say about that situation. I am a glass half empty guy. I confess it. Anybody else like me? Are there any other Eeyores in this world besides me? Okay, come on. All right, thank you. Um, you, know, you know who Eeyore is, that Winnie the Pooh character? It's not raining here. Yeah, but it's going to rain later. <laughs> right? It's been a good day. Yeah, but there's always tomorrow. Right? <laughs> Positive encouragement. Looking for the good in others, the good in the situation, the good in, in circumstances. I love the story of the high school basketball team. It was on the um, CBS News. The Gainesville Tornadoes in Gainesville, Texas, it's a, their fan base is pretty much zero because it's a, a juvenile detention institution, so none of the students can go to the basketball games. Most of their parents can't get there, so these, the, the only way to get out of that institution for a break is to be on the basketball team. So they get to go and travel, and they, they play at different private schools, and they were playing one private school in Waco. I just love this story. Vanguard College Prep in Waco, and, and as they play them through the years, the the students in Vanguard noticed that, you know how the college ball games are, you've got one, one team on one side of the bleachers and the other team on the other, the fans. Well, everybody was on the Vanguard side and nobody was over there on the Gainesville side, the Tornado side. So a couple of the basketball players on the Waco team said it's not right that they don't have anybody cheering for them. So they arranged for half the crowd to go sit on that side and cheer for the, the Gainesville Tornadoes. So these guys came out on the basketball field and they're holding signs and cheering and and when they made baskets and shots, they're cheering for them. And Before the game was over, both sides were cheering for the the Gainesville team and and it it impacted them. One of the players on that Gainesville uh, team said this. He said, when I'm old, when I'm an old man, I'll still be thinking about this day. I'll still be thinking about this day. They did it to make an impact, to, to encourage that team. The, the writer of this story said, this is how much of an impact encouragement can make. One of the students said, we all need someone to believe in us. We all need someone who knows our mistakes and loves us anyway. I'm thankful for people who know my mistakes and love me anyway. Aren't you? Can we be the kind of people who know others' mistakes and love them anyway? Unselfish humility, positive encouragement, and an attitude of joy, genuine joy, number three, if you're taking notes. 
I could have picked numerous passages out of this book of Philippians because the theme of the book of Philippians is joy. But look at verse, chapter 3, verse 1, just the very beginning. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. That word rejoice is used multiple times in this letter, twice in chapter 1, twice in chapter uh, 2, once in chapter 3, a couple times in chapter 4, I think. Just rejoice. Joy is, is permeating what Paul is saying here. So as he talks about this attitude of humility, it's in the context of knowing where our joy comes from, or where cometh frometh our joy, however that's supposed to be said. To, to know where the source is. This, this phrase, rejoice in the Lord, in the original language means don't just say it's in the Lord, but to, your rejoicing comes from the sphere of being in the Lord. So my rejoicing isn't just about him. My rejoicing comes from the fact that I have a relationship with him. So my joy is based on my salvation experience, my relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The psalmist prayed this, restore unto me, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Then he said, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. That's where our joy comes from. Our joy does not come from circumstances. Our joy does not come from everything going right, from, from uh, everybody saying you're good or everybody being, giving you their approval or, or you getting the, 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 the right response that you want. Our joy comes from our relationship with him and him alone. Biblical joy is a deep, abiding Attitude of peace and contentment. Paul doesn't say to his readers multiple times, be happy, be happy, be happy, be happy, does he? There's some good songs about that. Don't worry, be happy. All the be happy songs. He says, rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord. Paul even goes on to talk about how that joy had impacted him in verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, so then, my brothers, you are dearly loved and longed for my joy and my crown. This joy of the Lord, this joy that came from the Lord, permeated Paul's life so that he said to his fellow believers, you are my joy. Look at verse 4 in, in, in chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. These words, everyone, all the time, <laughs> In everything, always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say it. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. And then Paul goes into this statement about about worry. And and I want us to look at it because it fits this context of, of joy. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses every thought or all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul says this, a genuine joy that is rooted in Christ, your relationship with him, will overflow into every area of your life, your relationships with others, and it will be undergirded by your relationship with Christ. One of the ways he says here that my mind can be kept free from anxiety to not worry about anything or to not be anxious, some translations say. The way for that to happen is for me to spend time with God in prayer, in my relationship with him. I've talked with several people lately, talked to a gentleman this morning uh, about how long he'd been married. I've noticed several posts on Facebook about this is a one-year anniversary or 15-year anniversary or 30-whatever-year anniversary, some of you 50, 60 years. And when you, when you listen to those testimonies about those marriages, 
They usually don't say, I thank God for all the good things that have happened over this 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. They usually say, I thank God for that person I've been married to, right? It's the relationship. And I think that's a a great illustration, a great indicator of what Paul is talking about here. My joy is not in all the good things God has brought my way, and he has brought some good things my way. My joy is not just in the fact that I have blessings in my life. My joy is in the fact I'm in relationship with him. And when circumstances rattle me and stir me and threaten to get me off track through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, I make my requests known to God. I go to him in prayer. Circumstances can crush us. We've got a choice. We can stay faithful, maintain that intimate love relationship with God through prayer. Now, let's look at some alternatives to these right attitudes that Paul addresses. Some alternatives. You might say wrong ways to respond. First one is blame. If we're not careful, we're going to find some way to place blame. When circumstances happen and things don't go our way, we're going to blame. First of all, we blame ourselves. And when we do that, it just multiplies the guilt. It's that woe is me. It's I'll never get out of this. I'm terrible. Things are never going to go right for me. It's that, that lie that we listen to from the enemy that says you'll never amount to anything. God could never forgive you because of what you did. Don't even try to ask him for forgiveness anymore. That's a lie that comes from Satan. I love what Robert McGee has written, the author of Search for Significance, an incredible ministry that they've had. He says, when we, when we fail, and we will fail, we, we have this statement that we make to ourselves that says, I'm unworthy of love and I deserve to be punished. He says, that's false, that's a lie. That's a lie that the enemy tells you that you are unworthy of God's love and you deserve this bad thing that's happened to you. Bruce Naramore and Bill Count explain it this way. They, they talk about false guilt and true guilt. And, and they say false guilt is subjective and it comes with feelings. True guilt is going to be always objective. It's going to be based on facts. So we need to discern the difference. I, I like the way my friend Bruce Edwards says it this way. When he talks about false guilt, he, he talks about the condemnation of the enemy. He says Satan will always accuse us in generalities. You're no good. You'll never amount to anything. God could never forgive you. You're sorry. You don't deserve all those things you can do nothing about. God convicts in specifics where he says, that thing you just did was sin. That attitude that you just had, that, that thought that you just had. God convicts us in specifics and we can deal with that. Does that make sense? And I can say, God, forgive me for what I just said. Forgive me for what I just thought. And I go to the person with my wife and say, forgive me, honey, that I just thought that or said that to you. I, I, can, I can do something about that. But Satan just hammers me with this cloud of accusation. You're sorry. You're no good. You'll never amount to anything. So we need to discern between the two. There is a time when God convicts, so that's, that's appropriate. But don't play this blame game that just goes over and over again, all right? That's, that's what I just wanted to, to drive home today. We blame ourselves. Be careful with that. We blame others. We blame others. Someone said when we blame others, we alienate them and we poison the relationship. Bruce Larson said it this way. He's written a book about this. He says, the only one kind of counseling that has come to him that is relatively hopeless 
He said it's the person who blames other people for his or her problems. If you can own the mess you're in, he says, there is hope for you and help is available. As long as you blame others, you will be a victim for the rest of your life. That's true. As long as it's somebody else's fault, it's the teacher's fault. It's their fault. It's my boss's fault. It's somebody, as long as it's always somebody else's fault, you're going to be a victim. You'll never be able to help yourself. Over the years, as I've, as a pastor and church leader, had to, to step in and, and uh, implement church discipline and confront people in sin, almost always they put it back on me. It's, it's, it's my fault that they're in that situation. And I wonder, how can that happen? It's the blame game. It's always somebody else's fault. It's your fault. Robert McGee says it this way, we have a choice in our response to failure. We can condemn or we can learn. I think we need to be learning. I don't think we need to be blaming others. We blame ourselves, we blame others, and this last one is the big one, we blame God. When circumstances don't go our way, when life doesn't turn out the way we think it should, we blame God. And listen, this is what's so tragic. When we blame God, we're cutting, off the, we're cutting our relationship off with the only source of the person that can give us victory. Have you thought about that? He is our hope. He is our creator. He is our sustainer. And when I say, God, it's your fault that I'm in this mess, I'm cutting off the very person who wants to minister grace into my life. If If my joy is in the Lord, right, in the Lord, it's my relationship with him, and things don't go the way I want them, and I blame him, where's my joy? I've just cut it off. Because in the Lord means to be in relationship with him. Be careful about blaming God. We do that a lot. It always backfires. It causes resentment. I love the story of a preacher and an atheist barber. When a joke starts out that way, you know, there's a preacher and an atheist barber. They're, they're walking through the slums of the city. And this atheist says to the preacher, this is why I can't believe in your God of love. If he was kind, like you say, he wouldn't permit all this poverty, this disease, and this squalor. He wouldn't allow these poor street people to get addicted. No, I can't believe in a God who permits these things. So they walked a little farther, and the preacher let that go until they ran across a man who was really, really scruffy looking, long, matted hair, a beard that needed to be trimmed, and the preacher says this. He says, you can't be a very good barber or you wouldn't permit this man to live like this without a haircut and a shave. The barber gets mad and he says, why blame me for that man's condition? He's never come to me for help. If he'd come to my shop, I'd fix him up and I'd make him look like a gentleman. The preacher said, then don't blame God for allowing people to continue in their evil ways. See, we have this sense that that that. It's God's fault. We need to, need to own up. Be careful with the blame game. Blame yourself, blame others, blame God. Just put that off the table, okay? It's not a right response. The next response is, comes out of that, and it's self-pity. Self-pity. It's this passive attitude. It's, it's instead of blaming others, you just kind of feel sorry for yourself. Woe is me, <laughs> Right? Was the, the little kid's song, Woe is Me? Uh, I think I, every, nobody loves me, everybody hates me. I think I'll eat worms and die. Does anybody know that song? Yeah, okay. Everybody, oh, yeah, all right. Shall we sing it? No? Okay. Yeah, Kelly's dad used to use that one all the time. We get this woe is me attitude. Paul says, Don't worry about anything, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, go to him. 
through prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Self-pity. Well, I think about Paul and Silas in prison. Man, if ever there was a time for somebody to just really have a pity party, right? Sign me up for that one. I'm preaching the gospel and you lock me up and put me in chains and throw me in a dungeon? I'm doing what God called me to do. It's, it's time for a pity party. What did they do? They sang praises to the Lord. And God rescued them. And people were saved through that pity party. There's no place for that. Well, I need to move on, don't I? Number four, let's talk about developing the right attitude. So I've, I've painted the picture of what we don't want. I've painted the picture of what hopefully the attitude we should have as Christ followers and how can we develop the right attitude. One verse. It's in Philippians, again, chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers. You notice how Paul says finally several times? It's like the preacher who said, and in conclusion, what does that mean? Well, he's finally getting there. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, if if there is any praise, dwell on these things. Some translations say, think on these things. so important to fix our mind on those truths in the movie the beautiful mind uh, it's a portrayal of john nash and his his story is that in the in the 50s he was a a brilliant uh, mathematician economist and did some great things and then uh, paranoia and schizophrenia entered into his life and he saw characters and heard voices and ended up in an institution and finally later in his life he got through some of that took medication and they were going to give him this nobel prize for economics and They went in the 90s to interview him and ask him if really, I guess what they were trying to find is, are you a crazy person we're about to give this award to? And he said, yes, I'm crazy. And, you know, set him back. He said, really? He said, I still hear those voices, but I choose not to listen to them. I love that. That would be good advice for us, right? The enemy will continue to speak lies to you constantly. You're not good enough. You're unforgivable. How could God love you? You did it again. Shame on you. Shame, shame, shame. Choose not to listen to those voices. So what do you listen to? Paul says it right here in verse 8. Think on these things. Dwell on these things. Let's just walk through these. Think on things, first of all, that are true, real, valid. I think it's significant that Paul leads off this this, uh, verse with that, this portion of the paragraph. Think what about what's truth. Where is truth? It's not subjective. It's right here. It's the word of God. Paul says, think on truth. Think on these things. This is what's real. This is what's valid. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. This is what we are to dwell on. Find a scripture truth to address the lie. If if the lie from Satan is, God could never forgive you for what you just did. You go to God's word and you dig and you find a verse like 1 John 1, 9 that says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when the enemy blasts you with, God could never forgive you, you just say, I choose not to listen to that. Here's the truth. The truth is, I am forgiven. The next time the enemy says, you are worthless, you are hopeless, you're the same as you've always been, you go to 2 Corinthians and find, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Find a truth to replace the lie. Does that make sense? 
That's where Robert McGee and Search for Significance had such an incredible impact. They taught people, when the enemy comes, you replace the thoughts of lies with thoughts of truth. Think on things that are true. Psalm 119 said, your word have I treasured in my heart, hidden in my heart, so that I might not, what? Sin against you. How do you, how do you keep from listening to the lies? You replace it with truth. So let's just go through the rest of this list. Think on things that are honorable. Honorable. That means noble, not flippant, not cheap, but not superficial, but honorable things. Think on things that are just, that's right. Think on things that are pure. Some translations say wholesome, not, not smutty, not obscene, not carnal. Think, think on things that are, that are pure, that are pure. When the enemy comes and starts to distract me and get me off and think of things that are, that are, that are, that are not honoring Christ, you know what I do? I, I picture, the, the, for me, the, the demonstration of holiness, and I picture the cross. And I go to that, and I thank, I thank Jesus for the cross and what he did in his sacrifice for me. Think on things that are pure. Think on things that are lovely. Some translations say attractive or agreeable. Uh, just lovely, things that... that, that are lovely. Think on things that are commendable, he ends up with. Again, ways you can commend others, not, not tear them down, but build them up. If you have this critical attitude, the only way to change it is in relationship with Christ, and secondly, by thinking on the truth of the word of God. The old adage says, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, Reap a habit. Sow a habit. Reap a character. Sow a character. Reap a destiny. Where does it all start? It starts in the thought life. That's where the enemy attacks us. Paul said in Romans 12, we're going to be transformed by the what? Renewing of our minds. Paul said, take every thought captive into obedience to Christ. That's how you win the attitude battle. Norman Wright, a counselor and author, tells this little parable. I, I like it. He said, there's a legend of three men in their sacks. Each man had two sacks, one hanging on the front above, uh, off his neck and the other hanging off his back. The first man was asked, what's in your sacks? He said, well, in the sack on my back are all the good things friends and family have done. That way they're hidden from my view. And in the front sack are all the bad things that have happened to me. And every now and then I stop and I open the front sack and I take the things out. I examine them. I think about them. He goes on to say because he stopped so much to concentrate on all the bad stuff, he didn't make any progress in life. Then there was a second man and he was asked about his two sacks. He said, well, the front sack is all the good things that I've done. I like to see them. So quite often I just take them out and I show them off to people. They said, what about the sack in the back? He said, well, that's where I keep all my, 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 my mistakes. I like to carry them there all the time. They're sure heavy. They sure slow me down. But you know, for some reason, I just can't put them down. And then the third man was asked about his two sacks. He said, well, the sack in front of me, it's great. That's where I keep all the positive thoughts that I have about other people, all the blessings that I've experienced, all the great things other people have done for me. The weight isn't a problem. The sack acts like a sail of a ship, and it keeps me moving forward. They said, what about the sack on your back? He said, oh, that sack is empty. There's nothing in it. 
I cut a big hole in its bottom. And there I put all the bad things that I can think about. Bad things I can think about myself or bad things I hear about others. They go in one end and out the other. And I'm not carrying around any extra weight at all. And then Norman ends the story with, what's in your sacks? I like that. So I'll end this with that. What's in your sacks? Have you so immersed yourself in your relationship with Christ that your joy is in him and your focus is on him? Or have you so drifted and become distant that it's on the junk that you carry? I'm I'm advocating emptying the sack of the junk. Place all your burdens on him. Let's pray together.